Welcome to A Fistful of Truth. I am your host, Delara Essengill. This is my podcast. You can locate A Fistful of Truth at anchor.fm and other platforms, including Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, and a bunch of other platforms that are listed on the anchor.fm portal. You can also find me in my Telegram channel. The link to the channel is also located in the podcast description. And if you visit the blog, there's a link to the Telegram group where you can join and have conversations with like-minded patriots. Note that the Telegram group is only for the content uh, presented to you on the blog and on a Fistful of Truth podcast. The blog is located at www.delaraessengill.blog. That's delaraessengill.blog. You can visit the blog and research a ton of different topics. In the search bar, you can type in any keyword. You can type in Awakening. You can type in Pepe the Frog. You can type in John D'Souza, who's going to be a guest on A Fistful of Truth coming up in a few weeks. Please stay tuned for that on the 19th of February. I'll be making that announcement at the end of this amazing podcast that we have this evening. But on the blog, you can find a whole bunch of different things and also refer people to the blog and share articles because I am very censored. And the only way that the information gets out, the information relies on you. I rely on you, the audience, to share, share, share anything that resonates uh, with you or you think that might be resonating with somebody that you know or on your social media. So on the blog, you can reach me on the Telegram group and channel. And you can help support a Fistful of Truth podcast with the links provided here in this podcast description. Monthly membership is only 99 cents a month, 99 cents a month. And I want to thank the new subscribers. The number has went up from 38 to 41 subscribers now. I'm very grateful to all of you that are supporting the podcast. It is 100% listener supported. You're not going to hear ads for anything here. I'm trying to keep it that way. If I can get to 100 monthly members. It will be wonderful. So please consider if you like this information, and I can't imagine anyone who's not seeking truth, not liking this information, um, you can help support A Fistful of Truth by becoming a monthly member in the podcast. There's a link um, where you can donate monthly, or you can go to PayPal. I have a PayPal link or a Venmo link, and you can make a donation there as you wish, as often as you wish. Thank you to the PayPals who got me through 20 at the end of 2021 to 2022 I had a ton of things come up online bills that had to do with uh, keeping this thing going so thank you for helping with that because it wouldn't have happened without you and I am very grateful once a month I go in and I thank everybody um, who's donated through PayPal so if you haven't gotten a message from me yet you will in the meantime today is February 10th we're three days away from the Super Bowl in LA And my goodness, am I staying away from all that. In fact, you have to be poison appled to get in there. God knows what's going to happen. Anyway, the 10th of February, today is Thursday. And we have a series with the incredible Michael Fanning. Uh, This is the last part of that series today. And we're going to be talking with Mike in a second here. It is called The Next Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And I highly recommend that if you're a new listener or you haven't heard the series and you're hearing me speak to you right now, please make sure you go back and listen to episode one and two because it's in linear format where you won't understand really what's going on until you listen to episode one and two of this amazing series uh, where Mike is going to discuss some things about 9-11 that you've never heard before. 
and other information that you've never heard before. You heard it here first, folks, which is my new show on Friday night. So tomorrow night, you heard it here first on A Fistful of Truth. But really, you're going to hear a lot of things here first tonight. And I all my gratitude to Mike, uh, an amazing human being, amazing patriot, soldier of God, and really true fitting his name is um, because he is a real life archangel in my, in my opinion. So God bless you, Mike. And also, um, if you haven't heard the previous series that Mike did with us, uh, with a fistful of truth, it's called LA non-confidential. And I think that series is pretty badass. So you should check out LA non-confidential at seven parts, seven part series, always start with one all the way to seven. And this series, this is the final episode. It's a long episode, folks. It's a couple hours, um, of the next revolution will not be televised. So here we go. Get your butter and popcorn ready because this stuff, as you heard it here first, welcome Michael Fanny. Welcome back. Good morning, Delora. How are you today? I'm actually doing okay today. We have a lot of crazy winds here. It's not the Santa Ana's. They're a little stranger than normal, but it's been going on for a week. How are you doing today? Fine. So this is our third, third, uh, our third and final episode of the next revolution will not be televised. And I'm ready to hand you over the microphone. So have at it. Okay. Um, we have been um, events that were taking place in, in the United States um, post 9-11 and I started out with a uh, baited question of uh, citing President George W. Bush's uh, often repeated claim that since 9-11, the United States, due to efforts that were being put forward uh, through his administration, trying to say this with a straight face, um, that uh, um, the, the homeland, no longer known as the United States, no longer known as America, what we are now calling America the homeland, uh, has uh, not suffered any uh, subsequent attacks and I proceeded to start to tell you in the last uh, episode or t- previous two episodes that uh, that was a lot of rubbish and started giving some uh, some examples um, with sourced uh, newspaper articles that by now obviously are, are not available they're, uh, they're not even in, in an archive where they could be found, they've they've been they've been scrubbed, because um, that's what the system does. But in fact, uh, what I started to explain t- to uh, to your audience was that um, essentially there were seventeen stolen small single engine aircraft, and. Uh, at one point in time, total, and uh, 16 total suitcase nuclear warheads. Uh, 15 of those were one megaton, and one was uh, a very large one intended for uh, to be used on the United States Capitol at some point in time uh, that that measured 25 megatons, which was quite substantial. 
And I started giving out the stories of, of some of these uh, planes moving back and forth, um, crashing into the ocean just off of a nuclear power facility, uh, uh, as promised by uh, the number two in Al-Qaeda, uh, uh, Zarqawi, that uh, an American religious holiday post 9-11 would see another attack. Of course, it wasn't none of these these events that were taking place, including the train derailments. None of those were being characterized as attacks on the homeland. They were always being spun up as, uh, you know, some other type of a reason why the uh, the trains were being derailed and planes were falling into uh, neighborhoods that were predominantly Jewish. Um, you know, things like this. I mean, it's just like it's like. People are going to accept this. Most of the country has already gone back to sleep. Just like today, this country is after two years of COVID and uh, rioting and uh, uh, the election uh, results were, uh, I'm just... Comedy. It's comedy. It's... it's, uh, it, it's real, and and that the uh, what we see here, and, and people are just you know they they're so numbed by it because what I've been trying to explain here is that this is a an extraordinarily large intelligence operation. It goes on twenty four hours a day yep. without without any break, without it being tapered back. It's unrelenting. Um, and Agreed. it does have the effect, and it does have the effect on on um, on uh, just not just America, but uh, all the other nations of the world. Uh, people are uh, they they're stuffed into psychological constructed categories, and so long as they can go about their daily business. Um, the likelihood of opposition, mass growing opposition against uh, these events and the, the governments that uh, push them and keep them propped up, that opposition does not um, manifest itself. Now we're not we're now particularly seeing in Europe and in Canada um, to. Uh, a certain extent down in New Zealand and a little bit into uh, Australia, that there are large demonstrations of opposition against the, uh, the mask mandates and the vaccine mandates. Um, it's nice to see people uh, with a moral compass having a belly full and uh, doing the things that we're seeing that are being reported in the news. I, I would encourage people to just turn the volume down and not listen to whatever's being said. Um, if you have to watch cable news, which I refuse to do, um, and and just watch and let your eyes see uh, and, and, and uh, evaluate what you're looking at without having to hear an explanation being 
stuffed inside your head. So we're back to the um, these events and one thing that should be important to point out here that the untrained eye and the listeners probably don't would not take the time or know how to to realize but i'm telling you stories about tactically tactical nuclear warheads are are we're in the united states post 9-11 in the um the first decade afterwards where were they how did they get here how long have they been here and how do they end up into the hands of what were on appearance middle eastern males flying airplanes that they knew how to fly that were stolen and they weren't getting captured nothing was being reported as to that as to the facts of the matter none of that was being reported and anything that had to become that be, that did in fact become newsworthy was going to be well i think the old term is screw the pooch is you come up with another way of of uh, having to deal with uh, something that did f- and 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 change the flavor of and explain it in another manner and it defies logic it's, it's filled with consternation that that people who who would know like myself would recognize these events for what they were and that the, the public wasn't rejecting the uh, stories, you know, what you call the, uh, the narratives. Um, at about 2000, 20, 22 years ago, there were uh, a little old... Um, okay, so... Year 2000. A little after two th- years, 2000, at about that time, uh, according to information that was uh, conveyed to me by intelligence sources from within the, the government that I relied on, that I trusted, they were decent people. There was uh, a little over 500 Al-Qaeda cells scattered all throughout the continental United States, what's also referred to as the lower 48. 500. And that's um, that's a lot of terror cells, and a cell usually consists of somewhere between uh, five and ten individuals, sort of five. Um, those all had funding, and they had ongoing operations. In the uh, in the city of Spokane, Washington, Eastern Washington, which is a city of a, about at that time, 175,000 people. So it's larger than that today. There were two Al-Qaeda cells. Now, a lot of these cells are established in areas for strategic purposes. And with Fairchild Air Force Base being in Spokane, Washington, 
um, along with other facilities that uh, I, I'm not confident to discuss, but I know where they're at and I know what they, that they're there. Um, <clears throat> it would be, it would explain why Middle Eastern terror cells or Al Qaeda terror cells were uh, um, up and running. Similar to why going back into the 60s during the, the early stages of the Cold War or in the middle of the Cold War, the KGB would park outside of military reservations all around the United States. You know, and, and again, you have to ask this question. I'm asking it on your behalf, just in case you, it would slip past your, your realization, your recognition, your the ability to recognize what's wrong with this picture is how do those guys get in the country? How do foreign agents get in any country? How do our agents get in any other country? It's through the embassies that are established um, and they walk out the front door of the embassy. We've not talked about a little bit about this before. So back to some of the details. I left out one in the, in the chronology that I was giving in the first two episodes. We got up to discussing uh, an attempt to breach the nuclear power facility at Fermi, Michigan. And that would be in about 2004 or five. And that's off of my recollection. I don't have anything particularly to refer to to, um, to prove that as a source. <clears throat> But there was another event that uh, occurred on the 7th of June, 2003 in the city of Los Angeles in an area which is uh, predominantly resided by Orthodox uh, Jewish population. Uh, it's it's uh, referred to by um, in that area by residents as Kosher Canyon. It's, uh, it's occupied by Hasidic Jews and Orthodox Jews. Uh, it stretches from about San Vicente and Olympic Boulevard and Fairfax on the south, going up to about Santa Monica Boulevard along this corridor of Fairfax Avenue. And it goes out about a mile in each direction uh, east and west from there. There was a plane that was um, taken off, occupied by a single Saudi Arabian individual piloting this single engine aircraft taken off from um, Santa Monica Airport on the 3rd of uh, June. When it became a news event, the witnesses, numerous witnesses, busy afternoon, hundreds of people, cars, pedestrians, open businesses, people on the side streets, that amount of people became the pool of witnesses who, some of which became part of a story 
that was reported by numbers of, of, of uh, news media and, and getting characterized and downplayed and, and, and uh, changed the uh, changed what actually was being said, which was we were looking, we were walking down the street, we heard a plane overhead. You wouldn't normally hear a plane because they fly higher, but this one was flying quite low. And all of a sudden, the plane went into a straight downward nosedive for no apparent reason. There wasn't any smoke. There didn't appear to be any engine failure. And the plane went straight down and crashed into a two-story, about a 25-unit apartment complex just off of one of the intersections one of the side streets near approximately Melrose and Fairfax. Everything there was Jewish. Hmm. All of it. All it's, of it. Still is. Yep. And um, when the uh, news podiums with all the microphones were put up for the press conference, in the backdrop, there was federal agencies being represented, but the only person that was selected to talk about what was going to be said to be what happened was a fire department battalion chief. And fire chiefs talk about buildings on fire. Right. That's, that's their... Um, purview of expertise. The most significant thing that this fire chief said was that there was no nexus to terrorism. And then he turned around and he walked away. For most people who are used to being asleep, okay. <laughs> and then it's back to Oprah or uh, some game show. And or, or the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, it wasn't a Sunday. <clears throat> but uh, nonetheless. So that's, that's another event that took place that was not an attack on the homeland. Okay, just keep, just keep punctuating all these little stories I'm telling you with. And this was not an attack on the homeland. So now let's go back up to uh, where I was working at the time as a bomb dog handler at a uh, federal facility in Detroit, Michigan. <clears throat> and um, after the uh, Fermi incident, I also explained to you that it was followed by a, uh, a break into a chemical facility where some chemicals were taken uh, that uh, would be used to produce a substance that was being used throughout the Middle East where their, uh, their backpack bombs and their body bombs were, you know, somebody would walk into a, uh, a crowded marketplace and uh, explode uh, a substance which was known as TATP, triacetone triperoxide. <clears throat> Later on that year, on the 1st of October, 2005, the uh, homecoming 
football game at Oklahoma University was taking place. And uh, that time of year, it's, uh, there's high humidity. And there was this complex attack to uh, explode four backpack TATP uh, devices at four of the primary tunnels of the uh, football stadium during the game that would have been occupied by approximately 80,000 people, as well as a fifth device, which was a um, somewhat small but effective dirty bomb nuclear dispersal device that had been gotten what that would have been gotten into the stadium the only problem was and it's one of the characteristics of of uh, <clears throat> TATP bombs is that they are very unstable and due to the uh, the friction of uh, being um, moved about inside a backpack being carried by one of the uh, um, individuals that was participating in this attack and the humidity as he was on his route proceeding towards the stadium at the same time the other four individuals were en route from their directions according to their game plan, proceeding towards their entry points into the stadium, his backpack detonated and he became a, a puddle of pink foam. Oh my God. Um, um, in the, uh, the outer outskirts of the, of the stadium um, um, area. So what ended up happening was the other, four individuals, the three backpack bombs and the, and the nuclear radiation devices, um, uh, they were, um, the nuclear radiation device was abandoned. And then the, uh, the, the responding authorities were um, piecing together what was happening in, in, in a, competent way didn't be it didn't become public but it, but but the responding authorities in a competent way found out who the other individuals were and went and they fairly quickly were apprehended this was reported um, on a website known as the Northeast Intelligence Network, which was run by a man who I've had phone conversations with back at that time period named uh, Doug Hagman. Uh, Hagman had this, it would fall into the, the, uh, the category of alternative internet news. Uh, a lot of those are sketchy and um, not to be trustworthy and they, they have an angle and they, they, they profit from it or they're, they're putting out information. Especially <clears throat> right now. 
well, back then as well. Yeah. And, and it was in an earlier phase of, of uh, alternative news being developed on the internet for good purposes. Um, but this was just a man and he, and he had his uh, interest in, in trying to uh, put out information. And what he ended up um, benefiting from was that certain elements within the government intelligence agencies, and there's more than just the ones that we're aware of, he began receiving information that was quite credible. For this particular incident, he received live, uh, real-time, not live, but real-time photographs that had been taken from agencies that were on the ground at, at, the, uh, at the football game. And they showed the pictures of the dispersal, the dirty bomb being loaded into a bomb disposal vehicle, things that were indisputable. And they were up on his website for quite some time. They're no longer available. Um, I put you, I've given you the links in the, uh, in the podcast notes here uh, and um, you can um, cut and paste them and, and um, make them part of, of uh, your po- your uh, blog report. Okay, great. Thanks. So these, um, this, uh, the, uh, the chancellor of Oklahoma university uh, was the retired uh, United States Senator James Bourne. And he was marched up in front of a news podium (laughs) with assorted United States government intelligence and law enforcement officials uh, standing behind him. And he said, there is no nexus to terrorism. (laughs) He might as well have been wearing a a turnout coat from the Los Angeles Fire Department. What I was going to say. And a helmet. Yeah, it's the same Mm -hmm. thing. Okay. Um, I took particular interest in this event because I was still working at, uh, as a bomb dog handler up in Detroit. And I don't remember all of the phone conversations that I had with my contact at the time where (laughs) this guy was constantly sending me things, um, via emails that were um, not readily available on the internet for, for, uh, for that people could have found on their own back then. Uh, But there was a direct connection with the theft of the large quantity of those, those chemicals. And then all of a sudden these devices started turning up around the United States. This one particularly. Now, how, how would a stadium filled with uh, 80,000 attendees, how would that have played out on the world press? And how would it have affected the politics and the, and the economy of the United States of America had it actually had to be reported that those five devices 
successfully were put into the stadium and detonated. <laughs> oh boy. Let me, uh, after you're done, I'm going to tell a little story about a script that I was commissioned to write back in the early nineties when I thought I was going to be writing for Paramount Pictures. We'll tell it now. And, uh, we can, we can, um, just fit it into the, uh, you know, the, the, the things that I want to talk about here today. Just been blowing my mind as you tell the story. I was a young girl, and I mentioned this on a previous podcast lightly, but I'll just go back real quick and say it again. And I was about to enter law school, and I was married at the time. And I, they had some, up in San Francisco, they had some kind of a, I forget what it was, an event that Paramount was hiring writers and actors and all sorts of things anyway. Big old hoo-hoo-rah-rah, you go there, and they've got their whole thing set up. And I went with my husband at the time. Anyway, long story short is I ended up landing a job with them. They offered me one, but I never took it for the record. Never worked for them. And um, I wrote a script. And they gave, what they do is they give you, they wanted to make a, a series about a storyline. It was uh, two women. This never got made and it turned into another series later called Nash Bridges, by the way, which some people might be familiar with, but that's not the original plot and twist that was going on. Things change. And they had two women that were uh, police officers that had turned feds in the city of San Francisco and the city of L.A. That was throughout the state of California. The show took place and one of the um, what they do is they'll give you a storyline and you're supposed to write treatments and scripts and pilot episodes and a bunch of uh, 13 episodes for a season at that time. And one of the grand finale was a Super Bowl where there was a nuclear uh, warhead, a backpack nuke basically. Um, and the, the same type of, the same type of attacks that we're talking about um, was very detailed and characterized. And I was, very weirded out to be honest with you as a young girl when I was writing this thing I'm like this is it didn't make me feel good and that's part of the reason plus the people there were super creepy I could feel it back then because I had already been working since I was 16 um, with special victims I had started my career in law very early so I had an instinct you know that these something was very wrong but the fact that they detailed this uh, event but this was back in 19 92 or or three maybe four 1994 actually i think it was 1994 uh they had detailed this event and they had a complete and utter uh catastrophic ending to it but um i'll let you continue from there because it's just blowing my mind i'm remembering the details that they gave me of this uh, story where there's a guy that goes and it's a super bowl sunday and it's in that uh, takes place in believe it or not los angeles but anyway, well, predictive was, programming. Well, it is. It is absolutely that. And this would be a good time to point out and draw a contrast between um, Tom Clancy and writers in his uh, genre that write these highly interesting stories, books, and they become movies um, and, and uh, spinoffs onto uh, TV drama that uh, are filled with <laughs> um, classified information and nothing ever happens to Tom Clancy obviously 
except getting rich. Mm-hmm. And uh, but then you have Julian Assange, who uh, puts out information, and you know, holy hell breaks out loose, and and uh, his life is turned upside down um, for pretty much putting out information with the caveat that, well, oh, well, well, you didn't have permission. We didn't give this stuff to you. But it's of the same level of, of uh, things that are actually available to be done and, 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 and that are ongoing. Because again, all of this entertainment, including the internet, is part of a vast, comprehensive, and highly complex intelligence operation. You know, when they used to do dead drops with real spies and human (laughs) human intelligence activity would be going on during the Cold War, it was quite tedious for teams to to be in place from both sides uh, if both sides were indeed, you know, uh, clued into uh, particular situations and, and keep things tracked and identified and, and, and do whatever they were going to do with it. Now imagine the compound consequences, the capabilities that have expanded ever since being able to digitize intelligence operations with something called the internet. And now you can do so many different things literally overnight. It, as I told in the earlier uh, initial uh, episodes, it took the better part of a year to plan the 1992 riot. The riots that took place all throughout the United States in 2020 were done in real time on Discord and Telegram and uh, other messaging encrypted um, platforms where the government does or does not sit there and, and follow all of that. It's hard to do if you're doing a messaging app back and forth and your settings are set to uh, vanish and, and, and disappear once received on the other end of where a message is being transferred to or sent to after uh, three seconds. That's pretty hard to follow. But that capacity was there and it was put into place because it was invented by the United States government. And they own it. And they own everything that, is conse- that has happened as a result of it. And the moral and the culpability uh, of, of, of it on the people who run these systems constantly. And the politicians who sit at the heads of these bureaucracies in this country and throughout the world The the culpability is 
is astounding and it will last for on their souls for all eternity but we bear the brunt of what what is happening here and to point out certain things that clearly go past people's ability to comprehend is what in a small measure I'm trying to do here by pointing out uh, the significance and, and what in totality is taking place with these events that uh, we've lived through over the course of the last uh, 22 years since 9-11 took place, let alone everything before that. Um, so eventually <clears throat> I end up going to, to Afghanistan and I spend four, four years over there. Um, I worked in the area of, of aviation security and people that I worked with had uh, worked in their various nations, Britain, France, Germany, South Africa, United States, wherever, um, <clears throat> had backgrounds in aviation security by uh, working for the security organizations that were deployed into the airports post 9-11 to, to do what people who are listening to this broadcast know that it, having been passengers, you go through screening checkpoints. Prior to 9-11, they were operated by private companies and, and then the government took it over and what operated, not necessarily what TSA invented, because they didn't, they were given a set of protocols that were developed by uh, intelligence organizations and also from the international aviation um, security um, operations that exist throughout the world that are attached commercially to the airport associations all around the world. And those have been in existence and growing in, in uh, technological advancements based on need for the last 75 years. So at some point in time, 9-11 happens and the, the need to keep the public's confidence up meant that in, in, in government's fashion and in government mindset, well, we're going to put a bunch of roadblocks and barriers and, and uh, devices and we're going to uh, toss your socks and we're going to toss your bags and, and uh, we're going to, uh, you know, and, and in the process, it slows everything down. Doesn't slow bad guys from getting through. It didn't slow bad guys from getting through who were on planes, whether, and there, and there are several schools of thought as to what actually did in fact happen on 9-11, and I'm not unaware of those. And I'm not trying to tell you or convince anybody that it was just five or six guys getting on four or five airplanes and they ran them into buildings and, and, uh, and, and they were chiefly responsible for that. And it was directly tied to you know, uh, a guy in a cave, a Saudi, a Saudi 
blockade in Afghanistan. And the sensibilities, meaning the, the ability to comprehend things correctly, has been destroyed uh, throughout the world because of this continual dirge of, of ridiculous explanations that people it's called it's called uh, plausible deniability so they put up stories that have caveats to say well you know confidential sources and and uh people who are close to investigations uh, who uh, don't have permission to to go on the record officially uh have said the following right and mm-hmm. all these little caveats and disclaimers and and it numbs everybody and all it does is it increases the, the the potential for all these governments to continue to grow power by locking down um, access to things that were formerly wide open. Now it makes sense, and I'm not saying that there isn't a a reason to um, look inside bags and, and everything the technology is there it's it's quite it's quite good when it's used correctly um, and you run detection dogs throughout of throughout airport systems open to the public and the cargo and the and the uh, the checked baggage and you can spot the the, the these detection dogs can spot things that machines can't even begin to get close to. And I've worked both ends of those for a number of years. And I mean, I can tell you a long line of stories about how a narcotic dog or a bomb dog can find something that is so difficult and it would defy most x-ray screeners abilities to see it on an x-ray image and yet the dog is sat there and and is alerted on something so when you take all of that technology and you run it over to um, a a constructed war footing theater called afghanistan which was uh, itself a theater of operation that had been running for many, many decades. Going back to the 50s, the uh, United States Department of State realized that they couldn't fly their their aircraft without refueling um, at some point, and it was determined that Afghanistan was a, was a correct and proper place to uh, create an airport. And that was Kandahar Airfield. If you wanna look up Google or you go to DuckDuckGo and you look up the pictures of Kandahar Airfield, Kandahar International Airport, 
you know, look at this really ugly building that was built in the mid fifties and it's been bombed a number of times. It was bombed when I was there. <laughs> I walked out, I was on a phone call one day and a, uh, a mortar comes flying out of the sky. Oh my God. And, and crashes into, um, in between two cars on a uh, traffic lane just outside a um, NATO checkpoint, which was a, which was right at our tarmac for commercial aircraft. And there was two small turbocraft turbo engine aircraft uh, boarding at the time. One was a State Department plane and the other was a Pakistani uh, uh, International Airways aircraft. The, uh, the mortar didn't detonate, but the, the impact nonetheless blew the pavement apart and threw asphalt about 50 feet up in the air and it shut up, shut down all the operations. But the point is that, that I was making the point that Kandahar airfield and the, the actual building had been attacked over the years because the country of Afghanistan was a um, place on the map that was of strategic value to the world powers for whatever reasons they determined it was strategic. During the Cold War, Russia invaded, as we know, Afghanistan and occupied it for quite a while. And then the CIA and, and MI6 created the counterinsurgency efforts with the Mujahideen to throw them off, brought them in all of the military hardware necessary to, to fight uh, a successful ground operation. And the Afghan people, um, because they're tribal, Islam is almost irrelevant in the sense that what motivates them is their tribalism and this country that belongs to them. It's a ugly. It's a really ugly country. It's it's really ugly. The the trees. The trees. I've never seen brown trees before. Wow, a tree should a tree should be green, but the but the air uh, quality, the particulate that's in the air, um, soils everything. It looks horrific from the pictures. I can't imagine what it feels like to be there. Well, the the you know what it's like, and I spent forty three years down in Los Angeles with smog, and you know what it's like to to breathe smoggy air every day. But the United States air pollution is a clear day in Afghanistan. I figured. Because it's not just 
um, is it human, dust? It's dust that that carries human fecal matter. Disgusting. Um, it's very dangerous. Um, and, and yeah, I was there for four years. So, and and the <laughs> the, uh, Gross. The, it, it, the the dust is so fine that um, anything stirs it up, and and the, <laughs> And the uh, it's almost comical. They have men who, during the daytime, have these uh, brooms, and they broom the dirt in the roads, oh. in the city city streets, to broom the dust off the road. It's it's kind of like an hilarious. It, it's kind of like a makeshift uh, job to to keep people employed. Wow, and, and it would be something that. Uh, uh, the, the, what Obama had in the shovel-ready jobs of his original stimulus plan, it would be comparable to the Afghan government putting people to work. And they, and they wore orange jumpsuits. You're so kidding, you right? Could, it's true, well, isn't it? It is, is true. It true. Wow. It's absolutely true. You know, I mean, you know, when I get to telling stories, I, you can, <laughs> you, you're, you're, you, you never know if I'm actually pulling your leg or not. <laughs> But uh, this is true. And so these guys are, they're, they're just brooming this dirt from one direction to the other. <laughs> oh and and, it, and, and, and it's, all it does is it stirs it up even worse. And of course, people are driving by in all these various types of cars oh. and trucks. And, and there's, no, there's no emission systems over there. So when diesel oh, comes God. out of a diesel exhaust oh, pipe. Sticking to just, the dust. Oh, it's God. Just, it's just dense black, you know, uh, exhaust yes. smoke. Um, and everything is filthy. The people are filthy. They don't wash their hands when they go to the bathroom. Ugh. And then, and everybody's huggy kissy all day long when they're talking to each other, you know? Um, and we Ugh. live in this. We li- I lived in this. Um, and you realize that these people have been living this way for a long time. Now their country was a bit more of their own doing prior to the Russians coming in and turning it upside down. And all of the, the, uh, the evidence of, of all of the uh, left behind military hardware from, uh, of the Russian era when I was there in 2010 to 2014, you'd go drive around places and you'd see all these old Russian military vehicles. They built, the, the, the Russians built most of the government buildings and most of the, gov- and most of the uh, barracks housing for the Russian troops during the occupation, which have now since been turned over and become uh, apartment buildings for, for uh, the Afghan people in, in Kabul city to live in. Um, the the uh, the Russians, like any other conquering uh, force of bad will, um, intermarried. I, I don't even think the word marry applies. I think it's a straight out rape, and they and they would breed into the Afghan population, 
for generational control of of the country down the line. When, when they left and were forced out, then the Russian occupation became a Russian insurgency against the United States and the British who took over the country um, prior to 9-11 and, and post 9-11. The Russian government had a huge presence in the country of Afghanistan while I was there, as did an increasing um, political uh, presence of uh, the Chinese Communist Party. But the Russians in particular, when they would move, they would come to the airport with a contingent to bring their diplomatic pouches to put on uh, aircraft uh, that would be flying once a week to uh, straight nonstop to Moscow. Um, and, the, and, and they would violate every single aviation security, international aviation security protocol. And uh, I learned pretty quick that not even me and my hard headedness could uh, stand them down. They got more than a little interested with me. And, and eventually I noticed that uh, one of the young Ruskies started to try to become my friend. And I said, oh, hell no, <laughs> I'm not <laughs> stupid. I did not fall off the turnip truck yesterday. You know, I know what's going on here. Oh, their tactics are so intelligent, aren't they? <laughs> they well, it, the same but, MO every time. <laughs> well, but, the, the, but, but yeah. they're always plying on, on, on uh, human frailties. And when they try to leverage right. somebody, you know, and compromise somebody. Oh, um, it happens yeah. to me every day. Yeah. <laughs> well, you swat them like flies. <laughs> so the primary reason why the aviation security program commercially was set up in Afghanistan was uh, a, a, a military intelligence initiative run by the United Arab Emirates. And it, you would think, wait a minute, where's he going with this? And what was going on is looking at the world in two compartments, banking. There is global banking that we all know it to be. And then there's the Islamic world and banking. And as much as particularly the Germans and the European Union has tried to um, woo the Afghan world, not just the Afghan world, I'm sorry, but the, the entire Islamic world to become more secular. Not, that, that's not going to happen. To become more uh, understanding and, and uh, um, participating in, in, in the way things work in the Western part of the world. That's not going to happen. <clears throat> and they're alter the the, uh, the European and the and the German uh, motivation to begin with anyway was to 
gain control of the, the banking system in the Islamic world, which primarily is run by the Saudis. And the Saudis are hated by the rest of the Islamic nations because of their arrogance. And the, and the Arab world, which is part of the Middle East, it consists of the Middle East are the Arabs, they're individual nations that are not Saudi and that they hate the Saudis as well because they're the tip of the spear of, of arrogance of the Islamic mindset. The banking system in the Islamic world <laughs> is, oh man, I'm telling you, you know, you go into a check cashing joint in South Los Angeles and, and that, you would think that that's kind of like the old West, the wild West <laughs> for um, how do you, how do you get your money? You know, you go in and you come in with a, a check for let's say a thousand dollars and you go into a Nick's check cashing joint in South LA <laughs> and you're going to walk out with $500 because they're yep. going to take half of it. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, banks so-called as we, as we see them are constructs in the 20th century, but in the Islamic world of the 20th century. They were developed um, for two reasons primarily. One by ongoing espionage operations from a variety of all the big player nations using banks that would be seed seed money funded uh, into the governments because of the embassies um, running operations to establish banks that would help the economies and, and the uh, grow the, uh, the, the capacity of the various nations, including Afghanistan. But in fact, they were the conduits for money that would be uh, used to fund military operations or espionage operations within that country that would be uh, carefully constructed um, by these international countries that that were going to spin up militias to eventually destabilize things so that eventually a country like Russia or a country against uh, Pakistan versus Afghanistan. Good example, by the way, they hate each other. Um, <clears throat> the, the, yeah, the Pakistanis would uh, create all sorts of unrest by having paid Afghan officials. And, and there would be attacks that would be characterized in a certain way that would destabilize effectiveness of of uh, the government of the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, which is what it was called while I was there. Now, prior to that, this government was run in the 70s and the early 80s by the Russians, and it was infected with 
the the mechanisms, the the apparatus of what that government structure looked like. And to this very day, those ministries, those buildings, the methods of um, operation are Soviet era Russian models. They're uh, the Afghan intelligence apparatus, which is quite brutal, has so many different categories. And, and the ones that are known are the ones that most people only realize are the ones that are really there. But there's ones that are just like with the American government, there's intelligence agencies that nobody even knows exists. And, but in, but in the country of Afghanistan, which is just one of, I don't know, how many, how many countries are there in, in, you know, I mean, look at it on a map and just count it up for yourself in the Islamic world from North Africa, all the way over to Singapore and Malaysia, all across the Middle East, all across the upper half of of the continent of Africa, all throughout Central Asia and parts of Southeast Asia, all those Islamic countries, they all have banking systems that are inspired by tribal, the old world tribal methods of storing money and transiting money around. It's called the Hawala Network, H-A-W-A-L-A. And it is impenetrable. It is not digital. It's not even electronic. There are actually no official records <laughs> of uh, how a courier is given X amount of money in X amount of currencies and gets on a plane and goes somewhere and gets through the customs at another country to, and how does he get past the customs at another country? If, well, there's, if there's it, no corruptions in customs. Oh, not at all. <laughs> not at all. I, I could spend at least an, uh, a, the better part of a half hour telling you what the customs operations in the Kabul airport, Kabul International Airport looked like and what it consisted of and, and, and how <laughs> um, these, these uh, Hawala money couriers would come in the airport, the morning flights and the evening flights to go to various destinations, primarily uh, Dubai, which is the, uh, the main city in, in the United Arab Emirates. And um, they would be carrying various sized suitcases, almost always was United States currency in uh, $20 denominations and $100 denominations. And when you look at an X-ray image of um, currency, that's been strapped, you know, if you take, if you take a, a strapped 
stack of, of $20 bills properly counted, that's $10,000. You can fill a carry-on suitcase, the ones that fit in the overhead compartments, and you, get, you can get pretty close to $2 million in there. The what, does it ones, look, what does it look like through the x-ray machine? Well, I'll send you a picture of it. Okay. Um, but it's but it's uh, it's green. Uh, you can see the striations of the layers of the money and mm -hmm. the uniformity of how it's uh, it's uh, 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 placed inside the uh, the carry-on bag or you know a piece of luggage, and it's very easy to spot in an X-ray image. Probably one of the easiest things to spot. <laughs> and. Uh, uh, They are, they're allowed to transit out of country with money that is unaccounted for. Hello. Now you try to do that. You tried to take, put $2 million and $20 bills into a carry on uh, that will fit in a, in, a, in a overhead bin. See you later. Uh, in, in a United Airlines flight. You're and get that, through T, get that through TSA. Good Go luck. ahead. I, just try. Just try. <laughs> I, I dare you. Don't, don't dare me. Don't dare anybody in the audience. I'm just <laughs> laughing at the picture of all that. So, and I'm going to send you some pictures of some of these guys and some of these, uh, <laughs> some of these bags of money. Dear God. And, and the... Uh, the United States Embassy in Kabul, which I told you the other half of that facility was the CIA. Mm -hmm. A large portion of the what's called seed money that was given to Hamid Karzai, that gutless murderer, by the Central Intelligence Agency was into the uh, big numbers of billions and billions of dollars. They, they estimated, and that was it. It was an estimate. It was kind of like throwing a hand grenade into, uh, into an area. And, you know, if you're certain, if you're too close to it, you're going to get whacked. Okay. So it was just an estimate of uh, $4 billion of U.S. money was leaving Afghanistan every single year during the years that I was there, the four years that I was there. And it was being ferreted out of the country by these Hawala network couriers every single day, morning and morning and evening flights going from Kabul over to Dubai. Sometimes they would go up to um, uh, Tajikistan, but most of the time it was over to, the, over to Dubai. <clears throat> what was also interesting is that the money would check through with these Hawala um, couriers and they would get into the, uh, the International Departure Lounge upstairs on the second floor of Kabul International Airport. And 
I stood there one day and watched this one guy, a Huala uh, courier. And he had three bags filled with United States currency. We would open the bags up and, and physically count and then inspect <clears throat> the receipts that were given to him for the money count that would take place downstairs in front of house at Kabul International Airport with the Afghan Customs uh, Control Authorities. And they would take that those same bags when they first entered the airport facility with this courier, and it would take it into a closed a closed office with windows uh, curtained off. And there was a money counting, several money counting machines in there that were provided to them by the United States Department of Treasury. Part of nation building. Or, hey, we're going to hear, we're going to help you get better at, at you performing your customs uh, duties. Thank you. So you'd fill out, hand fill out a form and you could put any amount of money and any amounts of currencies that were there for this particular individual who's, who's presenting his, his uh, amount of, of uh, currency to be taken. And what would actually take place in that room would be a certain amount of that money would come out of each bag and would be given to the control authorities, not the personal individuals, probably that too. One but for you, two for me. <laughs> something in, in some fashion. Okay. And so then all of a sudden, what came back out of that count, counting room was official, good to go. You can leave the country with, with what's, what's left in the, in, the, in the bags. Now, what by the time those bags got upstairs, those bags were still, those, those pieces of luggage were still filled with money. And we didn't, we didn't ever, I mean, my Afghan employees were very savvy individuals. And they knew the lay of the land. I only realized and come to understand things because if they like you, they trust you, they explain to you, they say, Mr. Mike, this is what's really happening here. Okay. And, and, and so our guys would, would look at the money, count it, inspect the paperwork from the courier, put everything back together, and he's, he's good to go. He goes over there in the, in the lounge. <laughs> Now, in order to get into the lounge as a civilian, you have to be a ticketed passenger. That, must, that assumes that as a ticketed passenger. Hello, Mike. Okay, we're back. Do you remember where we left off? Uh, it was... We're talking about the money. After the uh, customs oh, okay. and the after the Saudi... Yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, all right. So I remember. So... Um, uh, um, one particular afternoon, I, I paid attention to this one courier, and after he had gone through our checkpoint, and uh, he had three of these carry-on bags, and one of them was a uh, actually a nylon, like a sport bag, with a zipper and a uh, couple of handles. And he had these things all tucked between his legs and, you know, crowded, crowded room full of people, about 500 people. <clears throat> the, uh, the challenge of the failure of deodorant would be 
oh. on any given moment uh, in the toe jam, and uh, oh. and, uh, uh, and the conversations, and 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 so this is the the um, the neighborhood that I was in every day. Um, and paying attention to human activity, looking for things that were, uh, shall we say, off, mm-hmm. not quite right. What's right. wrong with this picture? Well, the whole picture is wrong. And you're trying to figure out what else is wrong with besides the fact that the whole damn picture is wrong. Right? <clears throat> you know, Elizabeth Arden couldn't get within a thousand miles of this place. Even a failed, even a failed Elizabeth Arden. Oh, <laughs> anyway, man. So, um, looking at this guy now, they're the, the Afghans. They're running twenty-four hours a day with their uh, their little cheeky conversations between each other and and their cell phones. And um, then looking at this guy. And he's just sitting there and he's looking at his watch. And then all of a sudden, somebody walks by him and he pays attention to this individual. And this guy goes to a distant part of this very large um, international uh, waiting lounge for getting on the aircrafts and he stands over there for quite a while and then the what's actually happening as I, as, I, as I'm figuring this out is both of these individuals are waiting for one of the flights to be announced which would then cause people who are on that flight to stand up and to begin to form a line to wait their turn to get through the uh, the ticket checking uh, position and then walk down a uh, jetway to to that particular aircraft and then, you know, wait to to push back and fly away. So these two men, what they end up doing after they initially recognize one another, the courier has three bags and he remains seated until a particular point in this boarding process where it's his turn to begin to stand up and, and head towards that line. And he does that while he's has eye contact with this other man who has no baggage, has a ticket in his hand, and Afghan man dressed in traditional clothing, which military guys call man jammies no mm-hmm. um, and the uh, the second man who has is is getting drawing closer and they're timing the the man with the bags to stand up and he picks up two bags and he goes and leaves the one bag on the floor slightly underneath the uh, the seat where he was seated and then the other man slides over, picks that bag up. <laughs> and as a ticketed passenger, he has the option of leaving and going outside the terminal. Huh. So what this was, was a dead drop of about 
don't know, a couple million dollars that probably was going to go up to fund a uh, an operation up in, in the uh, the northeastern section of the country uh, called Waziristan, which is where a lot at that time a lot of the the Taliban activity uh, was taking place. Now that money came from that money came from the Kabul Bank, and the Kabul Bank had the CIA seed money in it. And the Kabul Bank was owned by one of Hamid Karzai's 17 incestuously created brothers. One of his brothers from one of the Karzai brood uh, was appointed to be the head of the, the Kabul Bank, which was essentially the pocketbook for the Afghan government. And it was known that Karzai and the ISI, which is the Pakistani intelligence service, were in cahoots with the uh, funding Funding, Karzai was helping to fund with CIA money the Taliban, the, the enemy of the established government that Hamid Karzai was the president of. Now, at one point in time, when this, this situation became so pronounced, the... Um, Secretary of State at the time, John Kerry, was tasked to come over and have an ass-chewing contest for a session with uh, Hamid Karzai to tell him to knock it off. Because, it's, again, it's all about the money. You know, and you're using our money to do something we don't want you to do. When we talk about Hamid Karzai, I'm going to recommend a book. It's titled The Punishment of Virtue Inside Afghanistan After the Taliban. It's written by a lady by the name of Sarah Shays, which is S-A-R-A-H-C-H-A-Y-E-S. She was a uh, NPR reporter. Now, liberal, liberal reporters... Um, as journalists, if they if they stick to the journalistic uh, model, they assemble facts. Now, this book was written in uh, 2006, but it was from a compiled group of notes that goes back to just before Karzai was brought across from Pakistan by the CIA to become the, um, the president of Afghanistan after Ahmad, Ahmad Massoud had been um, assassinated with a uh, sophisticated Israeli-style explosive device contained in a camera that was being used to film an interview of 
uh, Ahmad Massoud, who was one of the head of the Northern Alliances, and he was going to be the president of the United States. Uh, I'm sorry, the president of the United States, <laughs> the, pre the president of Afghanistan. Um, but that was not what was wanted. Uh -huh. And um, um, see, uh, you can always tell the, uh, the fingerprint, telltale fingerprints of an agency operation. Uh, what's what is outsourced for uh, deniability purposes, the wet work, and an assassination is almost always wet work with several layers of of uh, <clears throat> uh, difficulty, so that who actually ordered the hit would never be found out. Um, when uh, Karzai was replaced. Karzai was a CIA implant asset was held off country for a number of years for a particular time in which he would then become uh, used as the uh, CIA asset head of state. Similar to what Hitler had as his handlers when Hitler decides he had enough of being handled, <laughs> uh, Karzai got tired of being handled. And in the last uh, well, actually, from about the second year that I was in country uh, until he stepped down uh, as a uh, due to an election, an election right, with, with air quotes around it, um, and was replaced by uh, Mr. Ghani. Mr. Ghani, where did Mr. Ghani come from? Oh, he was a New York University economics <laughs> professor. He just felt compelled to return to his country of birth to become the president of Afghanistan. The oh, by the way, the the election process was run by the United Nations. Big surprise. Okay. Big surprise there. And while we're on the on this this topic of where I'm wandering around money and corruption and the, and the, the methodologies of all of that, um, I want to insert something that is done in all of these developing countries. Doesn't matter which one. Um, and since the Maastricht Treaty of 1992, which became the basis for the European Union being uh, established and then put up and running, um, th there was a satellite of the United Nations that was put into effect and established over, they operate out of The Hague, in the Netherlands. Uh, it's called the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. It is, um, it's a government NGO type of, of operation. Um, and it uh, is populated by people who come from the um, policy organizations that are from the Illuminati, the real Illuminati, not not the not the Hollywood 
you know, entertainers with their little funny little hand signs and their, their, uh, <clears throat> bits, yeah. Yeah. They're those, those, those morons, but the, the real grand Orient, mainly Jewish based, uh, uh, Freemasonic Illuminati organizations that have their public policy uh, uh, organizations such as the Bilderbergs, mm-hmm. such as the uh, um, Ross. The, uh, the, the World uh, the World Economic Forum, which is is currently run by uh, one of your good friends uh, Klaus Schwab, <laughs> that good looker. <laughs> yeah. Um, Klaus Schwab, and the reason why I'm, I'm talking about this is it. it uh, he, I have to thank him. Um, I um, I was listening to uh, Steve Bannon a couple of days ago, and they they were running a clip of about the uh, one of the aspects of the trucker just uh, uh, convoy uh, situation up there in Ottawa. And um, you know Trudeau is 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 catching all sorts of justifiable heat for what he's doing up there. And uh, there was this uh, video clip of, of Klaus Schwab over uh, at an event in Europe being interviewed where he takes a, bra- a moment to brag about um, the graduates, the recent graduates from the World Economic Forum uh, uh, educational organizations uh, were uh, they, they occupied about half of the cabinet positions in Vladimir Putin, um, um, uh, that, that moron uh, Macron in, um, oh, yeah. in uh, France, France. And, and, and Trudeau. Um, now, I, I, that link is there, so you'll be able to see the video of, of this of this particular thing that I'm referring to. Because the, the the greater point to be made here is that the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe has been for since its inception um, in the, all of these countries where NATO operations have gone on, or where the United States um, nation building operations have gone on as they go in and they evaluate the, the raw intellectual um, talent of people within the, uh, in, in the, in the 18 to 30 year old age range as students in, in the existing school systems in these countries. And they scoop them up. They, they they cultivate them, and and it becomes. I mean, the families just oh, they just love these people. They just oh, you're taking my child, and you're gonna you give him give him a free education. You're gonna send him to another country, and he's he's gonna come back, and he's gonna oh, my mom my mom is gonna love you for what you're doing to helping our family. And that what ends up happening is these guys end up becoming totally uh, stooged to to be policy wonks. For things that are coming down the pipeline, you know, in, in the next, uh, within the next decade, in the decade right. that after that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you begin to see this stuff, but you see it at the, at the ground level of how and what it's done and how it, it, it is uh, uh, made to be effective in a country like Afghanistan, where the people generally 
are permanently illiterate. But in a country that is most likely permanently illiterate, a large percentage, there's 25 million people in, in Afghanistan, probably half of that, they speak multiple languages, dialect languages that are unique and different. If you, if you listen to, as I did uh, on a regular basis, Pashto being spoken simultaneously in a room with people speaking Dadi, which is uh, the primary uh, language of Afghanistan, which itself is a dialect of uh, Farsi. Mm -hmm. um, they're distinctly different, distinctly different. These people are mostly illiterate, yet they have the, the raw intelligence to be able to speak multiple languages. Some, and there's no, in, in all these parts of these countries, there's no middle class. And one of the things that's missing with, with countries that don't have middle class that are all these tribal countries is that there's no independent thinking. So there's no ability to develop um, what we appreciate in this side of the world, which is uh, you, you can develop your character and, and your, your, your raw ability to um, defend yourself, to uh, create a life for yourself. That doesn't exist in these parts of the world. So it's easy to come in and with the satellite imageries that have been conducted in the last 20 years or so, they know where all the mineral deposits are buried at throughout these various countries. Like uranium? Like titanium. <laughs> um, and, and, uh, and, you know, oil is easy to spot. And so these, these, these military operations have always had an actual what's really behind the scenes is what are they really going there for? And it's not just our government or when the events that take place that give rise to why um, um, a nation goes over and, and inserts itself into another area, there's really an underlying reason. Like with France, they've been spending an awful lot of time in the last 10 years over in uh, Mali which is uh, one of the northern countries in North Africa, around the Sudan. So there's reasons why they're really there, not the ones that are st the stated reasons. And it has become very apparent to the people in the country of Afghanistan that with the, uh, the European Union running most of the, uh, the decision-making process for uh, the, the cultural and the economic relationships that were being developed between the uh, Karzai administration was that there was going to be mining operations, mining operations that were going to be started. And there was treaties, Obama was part of it. Karzai was very hard to manage the last two years of his, his administration and even Obama had to go over there and um, 
uh, sign things in the dead of night. I was there when he was there doing it. Um, our our uh, our compound was uh, just off the east gate of Karzai's uh, palace, and uh, the uh, they flew in all dark in the helicopters from the airport, and it was an in and out caper. They they had some signing uh, things that um, gave uh, as much of what Karzai wanted that they were allowing or intending to let him have uh, in terms of keeping raw assets for the sake of the country, which he had no intention of dispersing like a benevolent leader would to help build up the country and to build up uh, the economy and, and so that people could, uh, you know, have a better life. This was, this was all going to be about him. And uh, just like when uh, Ghani uh, bailed out Last August, he bailed out with uh, billions and billions of dollars uh, that he had transferred up to uh, uh, Tajikistan. Same thing when um, uh, Muammar Gaddafi was uh, displaced. He, he got away with $40 billion, you know. These, these, these leaders of these countries have no interest in, in giving their people that they're in charge of a better life. And governments that are outside using these, these, these individuals, they see it for that. And what they're looking to do is to export all of those, those raw materials so that they can be used for whatever they're capable, you know, like the rare earths that are in certain parts of the world that are used for uh, cloaking stealth technology. And it's, it's important for only one country to control that so that say like China or Russia can't come in and, and, and have access to that same stuff as, as well. And um, so that was, that was really what was going on behind the scenes. The other part that, that I want to come back to was that the, um, the military intelligence component of why the aviation security was established after the initial invasion uh, in Russia, in, um, in Afghanistan had, had uh, settled down. It got put into the aviation security program that was uh, run by Global Strategies Group, who had been the company who had stood up the uh, the aviation security program model in Iraq in 2003, which was so successful. They were the ones who were tapped by the UAE to go into uh, Afghanistan because the UAE Arab interest in Arab Islamic banking wanted to be able to control and rein in the wild, wild west of banking, as, as it was being, as I've tried to describe somewhat, uh, what was going on in Afghanistan. And they used the, uh, the aviation security component to do that because of the screening capabilities and, and that there would be, um, not that they ever had a real serious control over it, uh, being, being um, from the Emirates, 
and being further and quite far away uh, within Afghanistan, they never got a handle on on uh, getting that that money controlled. It was clear. I've told you stories about how the money just leaves in droves every day, mm-hmm. and large amounts of money. Um, but that was the initial objective, because the Islamic world, controlled by the Saudis for banking purposes, refuses refuses to blend its money banking system with the Europeans and with the rest of the world's digital banking system. And that is probably one of the most important things to consider that is never discussed. And you've heard it only here um, because I was fortunate enough to, to uh, be allowed to go there and to uh, profit from um, applying the, uh, my experience and, and skills to, uh, that were effective because I was trusted while I was there by the Afghans. And they didn't trust everybody. They, they hated most of the British. Uh, they, they despised the Germans. Um, and international contractors are a, uh, um, they're not very moral. They're not very pretty, pretty earthy, kind of like pirates. Um, and to, to try and do something, because when I landed there, the first moment I flew into that country and I'm landing, you know, at Kabul airport, and I'm like, I'm thinking, holy shit. What did I get myself into? You know, um, you know the the runways are surrounded by mines that were left there by the uh, the Russians when they left, and and those mines would every now and then go off. Um, NATO would be out there periodically with their mine detection equipment. And when they'd find one, they'd detonate it with a controlled detonation. Usually what happens when something explodes in in Kabul city, it just sets off a chain reaction of of all of the checkpoints where uh, civilian Afghan guards with AK-47s would be protecting their properties. It would be like dogs barking in a, in, a, in a series of yards. Well, instead of the dogs barking, it would be AK-47s that hear an explosion. So oh they'd, all start, they'd all start shooting. Oh, my God. You know, when, um, when the ISAF headquarters, which was the International Security, uh, whatever ISAF stands for, I used to know what it was, uh, right next to the U.S. Embassy would be attacked um, and our, uh, our original compound for Global Strategies Group was right next to the wall. Um, all of the, all the guard posts in that, that uh, police district would start cranking off their AK-47s. And you'd have to run for cover. If you were in camp, you'd have to run for cover. If you, if you were at the airport and there was an, act, an attack at the airport, there was no place to run. When um, and, and you can't, you can't. Uh, there's no degree of cooperation. The, my CIA um, contact here in the United States told me 
before I left, he says, you, Mike, you're, you're, you're going to go to a place where you're going to, if you, if you, I'm telling you and, you, and you're smart enough to realize this, but if you ignore anything that I'm telling you, you, you will quickly find out the hard way that there's nothing you can do to these folks of a Western mindset that they're going to cooperate with. And that's the bit, one of the best pieces of advice that I ever got as far as, you know, how to deal with what, what was going on over there. Um, so um, there's a couple of things I want to leave off with. Um, I've enjoyed the opportunity and I want to thank you and, and uh, the patience of uh, the listeners, whoever and however many of there are that have been and have taken the time out of their busy lives and days to uh, try and absorb things that I've discussed here over the course of uh, 11 podcasts. And this is going to run a little, little long today. I think we're probably over two hours already. That's fine. Um, but um, we're, we're in a, a point in time in history where so much has been accomplished evil and so little is being done of good to combat against it. Mm-hmm. That one of the um, likelihoods is that the weight of error and lies and evil, which usually relies upon inserting itself into a body of truth to stand it up Mm -hmm. for as long as it can take to be effective. The virtue of of standing up and being morally upright and opposing things, I'm not saying that it's gone away completely, but the scale and the pendulum has swung so far in the, in the, um, the realm of the evil and the organizations that um, operate in these evil manners throughout the world, that weight cannot sustain itself. And we're at a point in time, a turning point in history, where we're very, really very close to things completely falling apart in some manner or other. Mm-hmm. And it will be undeniable when it begins to happen. And we're pretty close to seeing some of those right now. The, the beginning formations of if it becomes a war, it's because things have been set into place to create those wars, whether it starts in, the, uh, in Taiwan or whether it starts in um, uh, the Ukraine uh, or they go off at the same time. Those in particular, if they happen, is because of something that started back in the, f- the late 50s when Russia and China, the two Soviet powerhouses in the world, purportedly had a pissing match with each other and said, screw you and don't ever talk to us again. You know, historically, 
there's countries that have never gotten along and they're on each other's borders. China and Russia would be like that. Russia and Germany would be uh, similar. Um, and there's countries that are just like that. But what we're talking about with political military capabilities uh, and points in time in history, the, that, that uh, dispute that, are, that arose between Russia and China, communist nations in the 50s was called the Sino-Soviet split. Last week, uh, the uh, Chinese communist uh, premier, um, Xi Jinping, and Vladimir Putin signed an, an accord of basically mending that Sino-Soviet split, that each would come to each other's defense if each of them individually decided to uh, go into Taiwan or go into the Ukraine. That's big. That is really important. Um, and the United States government uh, uh, with uh, the individuals that uh, are in charge, uh, there's, there's not gonna be an effective response of any kind if that happens and what do, one of the things that will happen if uh, Taiwan is seized is the semiconductor um, industry which chiefly resides down there that President Trump tried to get brought back onto the uh, continental United States and was obstructed by the um, uh, Mitch McConnell's uh, wife who has deep ties to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, the little Chinese communist, uh, what's her name? Uh, uh, Chung, what's her name? Uh, her and, and Manchin, who were uh, an obstructionist in, in the Trump administration between 2016 and 2020. They got in the way of that. Um, The, um, there's another thing that's happening which can possibly, and I would like people to try and pay attention to this, um, the, uh, the program is called Lawfare, like Warfare. There's a thing called Lawfare. And there is, since the uh, January 6th, the marketing of what happened on January 6th, the marketing of it and the politicization of it has spun up a, um, a legal um, program or plan strategy to prevent President Trump from being, able, being allowed to uh, re, uh, run for re-election in 2024. And it would be based on the fact that uh, he violated uh, a certain section in the Constitution by participating in what would be characterized. And I know we're, you know, nobody that listens to this agrees with this, this these premises. But what I'm trying to explain to you is that there is a real effort that would keep him, deny him, um, through because they control the courts. 
and and um, and the election processes that that would fall from that, the uh, the ability to run for re-election, the predicate for that, which would be uh, which needs to be the precedent by which they could then prevent Trump from doing this is being run against a um, North Carolina congressman by the name of Madison Cawthorn, who is a pro-Trump MAGA candidate. He's, he's already been elected and he has been filed against by uh, the uh, integrity election integrity project chairman uh, man by the name of Mark Elias to keep Madison Cawthorn from being reelected because of his involvement in the January 6th event. And in particular, Cawthorn's participation in the current situation of the Wisconsin electors resolution being passed that would uh, reject the, uh, the Biden electorals uh, count from the state of Wisconsin. And the, uh, the state legislature has passed a resolution that Cawthorn has been particularly instrumental in, in having that success take place. And it has spun up this lawfare effort to use the pretext of disqualifying him from re-elect, being reelected and applying to be reelected in this upcoming 2022 election cycle. And if that passes, it would then that that would be the, the precedent that would be used to be applied against President Trump from running for office again in 2024. Which is not I don't believe that's going to happen. I think this is all staged for the public, by the way. That's just my opinion. But I think a lot of the listeners um, believe that, too. So just keep that in mind when you're giving us these facts. I do. I do. Okay. I do. I do. I'm, I'm not I don't I don't own. A lot of this stuff political, I, I, I think I've said before, I don't make predictions, but, but part of it being able to be this successful this long in, in areas where my literal life has been on the line, I can't tell you how many times, um, is to read situations correctly, see what they consist of. Everything that's out there doesn't always fall into place. You know, there was a very famous historian who lived down in South Africa uh, at the end of the last century. His name was um, Ivor Benson. And his, his one particular quote that, that he was known for was, at any one time, there's at least a thousand ongoing complex criminal conspiracies going on in the world. At and least, I believe. That and is that's correct, true. at least. And yeah, and that's and that's very and that's very true. Yeah. Okay. And then two last points, and then we'll pull the pin on this. <laughs> um, it was particularly difficult for me to sit and watch the uh, the fall of Afghanistan last August and early September. And because I saw what I've given it, just a, a little inkling of what it's like to have been there and real people with souls and lives and families um, and, and no means of 
improving any of that and people that were there to, to do good on their behalf, myself included. And then the political politics that was running and driving things in various directions. And then the outcome and the effect of what Biden being allowed to prevail with the election and that he was, and the people it would become his uh, administration, um, not just the, not just the, uh, the, the secretaries within the, the departments, but the, all the policy wonks, the people from the National Security Council, the Susan Rices, you know, all of those individuals that would be running and making all the shots and calling out, making all the decisions. Um, they were the ones who caused that to happen, but they were put into place there because of what is known as uh, something from Chinese intelligence called um, elite capture. The target country had been captured and was being run um, remotely by surrogates on behalf of the Chinese Communist Party because the fall of Afghanistan immediately changed the Eurasian landmass control into the hands of China. Politically and militarily and economically, Biden, what he did, the decisions to refuse to apply the status of forces agreement uh, handover that was put together by the Trump administration that would have saw the Afghan government be kept in place, but instead the National Security Council under Biden refused to implement it and gave the orders to the, uh, the military commander, the army commander at Bagram Air Base, <laughs> to abandon all of the equipment. And once that happened, and that began back in, in uh, the preparation for that began in about February. So about a month into the office. And by April, the word spread throughout Afghanistan that the momentum had been changed because the United States was abandoning everything. And they were essentially gone. They were gone before most people realized they were gone. And so the advance on all of the assets of everything that was left abandoned that we all saw on television um, was taking place. And one of the things that happened as a result of that was that even though it's been partially obscured, uh, there was upwards of 30,000 U.S. contractors and, and foreign contractors left behind after the last C-17 departed from um, Kabul International Airport. And two nights ago, um, somebody put out a comment. Man's name is Drew Hernandez. He made a comment in response to President Biden making a comment across the, uh, the media about I want every member of the LGBTQI, whatever the hell the I means, uh, oh community, God. 
especially the kids who will be impacted by this hateful bill, whatever bill he's talking about, to know that you are loved and accepted and that you are, um, uh, that I have your back and that my administration will continue to fight for your protections and safety you, you deserve. This man, Drew Hernandez, uh, said, um, there are still Americans deserted in Afghanistan. And he asked, he, he asked the question, uh, did you have their backs? <laughs> I, um, I responded to that and I said the following, and this is what it kind of summarizes what um, what I feel about the treachery that I've always felt about treachery, but with these specific events and facts where people are left behind. I said the following, American and expat contractors left behind in Afghanistan last August faced unimaginable and unforeseen circumstances thrust upon them to have no cover little or no assets and to seek cover where in the dark and the foreboding streets of Kabul and elsewhere. The chances for initial survival were bleak and as time passed the chances for avoiding capture and certain death after torture and interrogation would never be made public back in the United States for almost certain. The courage to live and work there was immense and always treacherous, but there were always safety nets that even thin at least kept a thin veil of reasoning functioning. That all ended with Biden's treason, which forced brave men and women to live and face a certain death with the knowledge that they'd been purposefully abandoned, never to see their loved ones ever again. All to shift the balance of Eurasian landmass power into the hands of China. Now, do you understand why events of the last five years of fake political scandals, communist-inspired riots in American cities, an active war using a bioweapon and a rig election has managed to be able to get accomplished? And the last thing I wanna talk about is a religious and a, and a metaphysical concept that time, time, the existence of the world being uh, in existence and calendars plotting it, time is a construct. Eternity doesn't have any time in, in existence. And I told the listeners about the fullness of time when Jesus Christ was crucified and that he had established a church and that the purpose of the crucifixion was to fulfill all of the prophecies of the Old Testament and to begin the outcome of the remainder of the balance of the world based on the gospel contained in the New Testament. <laughs> and the church that he established as God, not a man-made church, one that would be attacked by Satan and would be dissimilated uh, and tried to be broken apart by men of all stripes and, and then motives across the remaining ages of the balance of time, that construct of time. 
and we know that time will come to an end and that at that point in time there is what is uh, described as being the second coming the return of jesus christ but until that time comes when the return of jesus christ comes into the world there is only one thing that keeps each day in existence only one thing and that is the holy sacrifice of the catholic mass the traditional mass the mass of the ages and during the vatican council of the 60s it invented and created what is going to be proven to be the abomination in the holy place the placing of a, a second altar in front of the of the true altar and an offering of a false sacrifice, the new, the Novus Ordo Mass, the new order of Mass, where there is no grace produced. And the only thing that exists is the remainder of the balance of the Masses that are being offered throughout the world in a few places, very, very, very few places, relatively speaking, each and every day, currently, so that when a priest offers a mass, metaphysically, it's the mass of Calvary. It is the Last Supper, the capture, the trial, the scourging, the crowning of thorns, the carrying of the cross, the crucifixion, the seven last words, the propitiation of the creation of all the grace necessary to fulfill should people avail themselves of it individually throughout the balance of time to seek forgiveness. When the last mass is said by the last priest, that is the last day of time, which will, which will bring the second coming. We are in the early stages of the book of Revelations. And when I was talking earlier about the enormity and the imbalance of the evil in the world, I could not let that stay as the final thing to be said without having to cap it and counter it with the greatest gift of hope and opportunity for individual salvation that there is, is to be able to go to a Catholic or true Catholic mass and receive our Lord. Because when people walk metaphysically from their pews to the communion rail, literally what is happening is you're walking through a construct of time back to three o'clock in the afternoon, 33 AD on Good Friday afternoon, and you're kneeling at the foot of the cross. And you're, given, and you're being given the body, the blood, the soul, and the divinity of the crucified Lord Jesus Christ. That power is what all of this evil in this world is set against. And it cannot and will not succeed, even though the appearances of that success are where they're at today. I want to thank everybody for their patience and um, Delara, you're an amazing woman. You're a very good friend. I love you very much, and I wish you the best. Thank you, Mike. 
I think you're one of the most amazing people I have by, by the grace of God got to meet in this lifetime. And I'm grateful for everything you do for humanity and for being here and talking about these not so easy things and delivering a message of truth by almighty father God. Thank you, Mike. Bless you. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning into this final episode of The Next Revolution Will Not Be Televised. And thank you, Michael Fanning, for all that you have done. And yes, well, he made a joke today and said, now I'm now I'm really retired. Well, I assume that at some point, Mike will come back and we'll maybe have some fun on the show. Maybe we'll do a Wednesday night fistful of laughs because Mike's actually a really funny guy. Um, I've gotten to know him over the years and there's been times where I've been on the floor and he's made me laugh so hard that I really just couldn't even get up. So hopefully we can have him back for a fistful of laughs. But uh, this subject matter in this episode and the previous ones that Michael has been so kind and gracious enough to um, gift us in, in our lifetime is so important and so uh, new to everyone, including myself, I hope that you take the time to not only digest it, listen to it, but also, again, please do kindly uh, share it with others. So this concludes our three-part series. And again, make sure you listen to one and two before you listen to three. And I also wanted to add that I probably should have announced before in the, in, in the initial part of this uh, long but amazing segment that the uh, recording was interrupted a couple of times and uh, one of those times was due to a strange uh, occurrence that happened on my phone. <laughs> but the other times, uh, we had a lot of interruptions before. And it's funny, I, I always know that when I get on the phone, especially since what I've done for a living and what I've been exposed to in my lifetime and what I've seen from the back end that most people don't ever get to see in their lifetime, um, there's always somebody listening on the phone. So I hope those of you that have been listening on the phone and not just tuned into this podcast are also enjoying enjoying the ride and uh, thank you shout out to the white hats for keeping us alive and working through this operation which is uh operation humanity in my in my world um, this is what it's looking like you know i know it's taking a long time and a lot of us are impatient but just hearing these stories uh from mike from beginning to end and realizing what that has brought us to today and where we are at today as a result of the information you just heard and learned and how it integrates into our our society and besides the infiltration that has happened uh, what the recovery for something as big as this infiltration uh, really entails and how detailed and magnificent uh, this act of God really because ultimately as we know ultimately this is God's show and ultimately, in the end, God always wins. Thank you, patriots. Thank you for tuning in. And God bless you all. Where we go one, we go all. Mm-hmm.